KYW Original Podcasts. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames this week. It's our first ever Flashpoint Roundtable taking on the biggest stories burning up this summer's headlines. When I read that story, I said to myself, what are these people thinking? From racist Facebook posts by police to state Republicans underlining Philadelphia's DA Larry Krasner's power. This bill was snuck under the rug. And can't forget the 2020 election. I feel a great deal of empathy for the Democrats that go around. It's been a hot, hot summer. Temple University announces they may have found the cure for HIV. We were able to eliminate all the virus DNA. The head researcher talks about the breakthroughs and next steps. All of this and more. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. This is Cherry Gregg, host of the Flashpoint Podcast. I'll be at the Philly Podcast Festival on Saturday, July 27th at Indy Hall. Join me for an exciting free live show where we deep dive into wrongful convictions. Get all the details at KWNewsRadio.com slash Flashpoint Live. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus this week, some of the biggest stories of the summer from gun violence to state Republicans undermining Philly's DA and more. We have all sides represented. Let's dig in. With me in the studio to discuss this Flashpoint is Asa Khalif. He's an activist and organizer for Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ community. We have Larry Seisler, principal of Seisler Media and Issue Advocacy. And finally, we have Farah Jimenez, CEO for Philadelphia Education Fund. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Farah. So a lot has been happening this summer. First up, let's talk about the gun violence in the city. We've seen an uptick in shootings in Philadelphia, sometimes multiples in one day. At one point, we had like two dozen plus injured in two days. How's the city handling it? And Asa, we'll start with you. I think the city is at a crossroads. I don't think they pretty much know exactly what to do at this point. We really need to deal with it. And it can't just be lip service and it can't be ceremonial type talk. We need to go back to grassroots type efforts um, where law enforcement is in contact and, and communication with people who live in those areas. We need church and clergy involved. We need our politicians out of City Hall and onto the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to take a collective um, effort from everyone, even including activists, to handle this issue. This is bigger now than just the slogans and the hashtags. Yeah. We truly are in a state of emergency at this point. Do you feel like the pushback, the response to this is good or bad, Larry? I don't see any response. I mean, but this isn't anything new. You know, I started working... I worked for a mayor starting in 1987, and this has been a constant. Nobody has an answer. I don't even know if they even try to come up with answers. Sometimes they blame the mayor. I don't see how you can blame the mayor. I mean, you know, under Nutter, you know, we, we, had, we had a huge spike, you know, also. Look, where I live, this isn't happening. But I have to feel it, you know, because it, it's my city. So I only read about it. Yeah. Or I see it on TV or I listen on the radio. Yeah. But other people... This is this is their daily life. I just don't know what the answer is. And I don't know any city that has solved it. And, you know, it always used to be, well, if the economy was OK, then these numbers would go down. Now, the economy and, and people can argue whether it's help who it's helping or, or if it's not helping. But the economy in the country is good. 
but we still have this going on. And every time school lets out, Vera, we see this. As soon as like as soon as school lets out, you see the flash mobs with the kids. You see the uptick in youth violence, and a lot of kids are living in war zones in the summertime. Well, I think Larry makes an important point here that certain communities don't experience gun violence, and then there are other communities for whom this is a daily struggle. Uh, there is research that talks about one of the ways to address this is to really focus on what are hot spots. Mm. And it's a strategy that's actually been employed by Oakland, California, to address some of their gun violence. Because we recognize, and the police used to map this out through data um, to understand where is the activity really happening. And there was a program under the Nutter administration where the police commissioner um, had organized some police officers who interfaced with students with young people who were viewed as, based on their interaction with the justice system, as likely to be future perpetrators unless something was done to get to them earlier. And that seemed to be a way of kind of staving And we saw the numbers go down for a while, yeah. That program is no longer happening. And I think there are opportunities to really look at what are other cities doing, what does the research show, and instead of trying to take a wholesale approach to the problem, really take a retail strategy that focuses in on those communities where this is happening – but in a positive way, yeah. um, really supporting young people and helping them think differently about choices they make. Because right now we saw fingers pointing, people blaming police, people blaming mm-hmm. neighborhoods, people blaming the new district attorney who's been mm-hmm. very progressive. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we got racist Facebook posts where we see all kinds of protests about that. Mm-hmm. Um, comment on that because we had thousands, literally thousands of posts, 72 mm-hmm. police officers on desk duty. Uh, and, and and we still need them yeah. because gun violence is crazy. Well, it's actually the, the total was 328 officers who were under investigation for these uh, racist posts. Uh, 72 currently are on death duty, um, which is about 5% of the police. Um, so we're not talking about pulling a multitude of police officers off the street, leaving just a few behind. So there's about 5% of the total totality of the police. It's very important, though, and I've said this many, many, many times as an activist in the Black Lives Matter movement and other grassroots activists in the city, that there is systemic racism, bold racism. Even black police officers have experienced it in the police department. And instead of continuing to cover it up and say, oh, there's a few bad apples, there's more than a few bad apples. When you get 328, and that's just the ones that we knew about, there's more than just a few bad apples. There is a history of racism and anti-blackness in the Philadelphia Police Department, in law enforcement, period. And unless you address it, unless you totally address it and make the statement, use this opportunity to make an example that we will not tolerate anti-blackness. We're not going to tolerate racism. We're not going to tolerate homophobia, transphobia, and all the other nonsense that they say. Islamophobia, on these posts. yeah. Islamophobia. We're not going to tolerate hate. And if you do this and engage in this behavior, we're going to fire you. But firing, yeah. but firing police well, officers. That's is, the problem. Yeah. I mean, like, I look at it. When I read that story, I said to myself, what are these people thinking? Here they are, police, representative of the community, yeah. and to do things like this. But yeah, First Amendment, freedom of speech. There's a part of me, that's a big part of me, it says at a certain point, you lose that. When you're a public servant and you are serving a community, you just can't do that. This is a real problem. And, you know, again, and I think you tie the two together. It's, it's very difficult for people to have respect for law and order when you have this type of behavior. Yeah. It's terrible that this broke and that the police officer engaged in this activity. This is a really sad news story. 
But the silver lining in that is that it uncovered something that was underneath that really does affect the way that police engage with the community. So I do think that if the, the police commissioner to really take this as an opportunity to think about how do we help change the mindsets of some of these officers with the communities with which they engage, because I do think it creates, it kind of feeds the narrative mm-hmm. that happens in low-income black communities in particular that have negative experiences with police officers, and then you see their Facebook posts that kind of reinforce that narrative in a really negative way. That being said, I think police officers probably felt that they had a First Amendment right to express themselves in this way. But we've seen that in education environments, there are schools, even in Pennsylvania, where teachers have posted negative things on Facebook about their students and their students' parents, and they have lost their jobs. And it has been defended as not an appropriate use of their First Amendment right. And we've seen ER nurses lose jobs. We've seen people, because in hospitals, if you say something racist Mm -hmm. and someone dies and they accuse, you know, you of not providing service, this hospital's liable. But I believe it's also in their their contract that they signed. There are some guidelines. There are guidelines that that talk Mm -hmm. specifically about this. It's beyond a First Amendment. If you're working as a law enforcement and you take a pledge and you sign that contract. The question is whether or not firing or some other the disciplinary mm-hmm. measure is appropriate in this case. And, right. and, and Ross has said he's going to get to the bottom of this. Yes. He did come out. He mm-hmm. did uh, take swift action here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's move on because we have another big story that just recently came out. The state legislature passed a bill that gives Attorney General Josh Shapiro concurrent jurisdiction with District Attorney Larry Klasner when it comes to prosecuting gun cases. It also allocates two and a half million bucks for Philadelphia's gun task force uh, good or bad for Philly? Extremely bad for Philadelphia. As someone who supported D.A. Larry Krasner and believe in his progressive policies, and he's done a tremendous job, I'm very alarmed the fact that they only targeted the Philadelphia district attorney in terms of taking away some of his powers to share with the attorney general. This bill was snuck under the rug by Republicans. Uh, but Democrats signed on. Democrats claimed they didn't know it changed in the middle of the night. Politics can be very tricky. Um, whether you believe that or not, the, the bottom line is the district attorney was elected by the people here in Philadelphia to do a job. And for anyone to try to come and, yeah. and take away that power is wrong. And I mean, people say it's not taking away anything from Larry Krasner. Instead, it's just giving Shapiro power, which he has said via Twitter he will not use. Well, you know, you got to remember, it's not Attorney General Josh Shapiro. It's not District Attorney Larry Krasner. It's the Attorney General. It's a district attorney. Now, one could argue it was targeted at Krasner. Now, as I understand it, the first draft of this bill was actually all 67 counties. Um, but then, it, obviously, it got, scaled, it got scaled back, so it was Philadelphia. But one place where I, I fault Krasner is that one of the major forces that was pushing this legislation was the District Attorneys Association of, of Pennsylvania. And he withdrew, yeah. Larry Krasner, when he was elected, withdrew Philadelphia from that association because they said, oh, we don't agree with anything they do. And I had told his people, I said, you know what? you got to be a part of these things because Philadelphia, you may not agree, but it's always good when Philadelphia is together with the rest of the state, at least to be able to talk. So, you know, one could argue this might have happened anyway, but at least, you know, Krasner would have had a voice in the District Attorney's Association. So I would hope that he would look at this and take this opportunity and, and, re- and rejoin it. Yeah, is this is this sort of like, you know, uh, Ferry, do you want to comment on this? I mean, do you feel like Philadelphia got duped? I mean, because our Democrats signed on to this. 
Well, so the Republican legislature did indeed pass this bill, but they chose another Democrat to be the one who would provide the oversight over how Philadelphia disposes of its gun cases. So what it speaks to is, I think, an enormous amount of confidence in the uh, professionalism of the attorney general and probably comments a bit on the fact that Larry Krasner, I think many would claim he's not truly a prosecutor in mindset and has allowed for a lot of gun diversion cases to um, really continue to arm the people of Philadelphia in a negative way. So as a point of example, um, he has put 78 gun cases into gun diversion, which means that these people don't actually end up being prosecuted for having a gun illegally. In the past four years, only 47 such cases were put through gun diversion. So he has ramped up the number of those kinds of cases that are not getting prosecuted. So I get it as empathetic for the people who are yeah. caught with those guns. But then you also have to realize what that means for the people in those communities where those guns can continue. And to I'm going to let Asa respond because a lot mm-hmm. of people have been very critical of Krasner for this mm-hmm. and and have been critical. They, they, they feel like they're, there's not a tough on crime and with this violence uptick. People are making correlations that that facts don't necessarily bear out. Yes. And I think the district attorney is getting a raw deal. There were a hike in crime when one tough cookie, Lynn Abraham, was head of the uh, district attorney's office. So we, you cannot just it's unfair to blame politicians or someone that's in a position for a spike in crime. Uh, Larry Krasner has been extremely progressive and that type of progressive behavior and, and, and attitude has helped. Low-income, poor people has helped people of color who have not gotten their fair deal and their fair uh, shake in the injustice system, and as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and the numbers yeah. reflect that. Um, is he tough on crime? Absolutely. He has prosecuted uh, every um, gun charge. It's has He takes a look at it. He's a smart district attorney, number one. He's just not charging people just to charge. Every uh, case is separate and every case is different. Yeah, and I think yeah. you need to, to, in order when you're dealing with people's lives and their livelihood, yes, you need to take a, a look at that and make sure that you are prosecuting yeah. people correctly. And, and, out of, and out of fairness, there's been a lot of pushback from victims, though. Victims have been complaining about this. And I got to mention that just because, you know, I, I listen to everybody, you know, and, and, and I have heard big complaints because victims feel like, People aren't getting enough but you time. Know what, Sherry, he as he said he was elected. It's not like people didn't know mm-hmm. what they were they were getting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. listen, George Soros spent a lot of money for him to tell people what he was going to do. So there was nothing, you know, there was nothing hidden here. Well, but yeah, well, besides George Soros and the money. Uh, Larry Krasner had a strong reputation in people grassroots. of color and a grassroots. Oh, yeah, so yeah. we knew who we were dealing with. Uh, Soros money helped, obviously, in in, in this yeah. to yeah. contested right. race. But, but we knew who Larry Krasner right. was those, long before George right. Soros came right. on the scene. So there were people who who knew, but there were a lot of people who didn't know. So if you look at if you look at the numbers from that election, mm-hmm. Krasner did well throughout throughout the city, throughout the city, and you know people embraced what they thought was the way to go. And so I think for a lot of people who are criticizing him now, I think basically you got to wait, you got to wait till the next election. But this, this is what, this is what people voted. for. I think people embrace things that in theory seem to be things that would work out really well, but there's always a consequence, right? So a perpetrator who um, uh, uh, has a victim, when you create justice for the perpetrator um, you are also 
possibly creating an injustice for the victim. That's why justice yeah. is represented in a scale. And when the prosecutor puts his hand on the same side of the scale as the defenders association, you're creating an imbalance for victims, which I think the judges are concerned about. Certainly the police are concerned about and a number of victims are concerned about. So yeah. I get it. But it's really about how do you balance yeah. that in the fairest way? For yeah. Victims? And, and before we sit shift, I just want to say how ba- it must have been wild in Philadelphia for people to literally go and hire, a de- you know, elect a defense attorney, mm-hmm. because I see all these people who were wrongfully convicted getting out right Absolutely. now. It's and we're going to be talking about that later. So I want to switch gears. Meek Mill is getting a new hearing. A lot of people were critical of Meek Mill mm-hmm. when he first started. Uh, you know, he became the face of this probation and parole reform. How's he doing? How is the movement doing? Despite the fact that people said that he was the bad, he was not a good poster child. Meek Mill is a rapper and entertainer, and he, he speaks from his own experiences. Sometimes people get thrown into movements yeah. um, without necessarily, mm-hmm. um, you know, without bringing their own this is my will. I wanted to do this. Um, Meek was thrown into something, but I think for someone who's thrown into the mix, he has um, stepped up to the plate. I also believe that he is realizing uh, how blessed he truly are. And he is speaking out. He spoke out um, for individuals who have been unjustly incarcerated, such as David, um, um, Eric Riddick, who he also um, yeah, met, yeah. you know, and we've been fighting for that. So I think he realizes now you know, the pressure is off because now he's kind of fit into this is where I'm supposed to be and I'm going to use this platform wisely. And people, I mean, money is pouring into this. Um, there's lobbyists. He has well, he's, his, yeah, I mean, the Reform fact Alliance. Is, you know, the fact is he had he had the resources and, and that and that's and that's the difference. Um, I would argue, I, I mean, I think he was wrong. No, no doubt about it. I would argue he's probably, at least for me, not the correct poster child, um, you know, for this. And unfortunately, I look at, I look at his lyrics, and I look at him as a, as a performer, and I look as a as a father who has daughters, and um, and you know the way you know the way he raps and what he talks about and his misogyny and whatever. So I would argue he's probably not the the, the appropriate um, poster child. But to his credit, as a person who was wronged. And seen it firsthand, he has taken the resources he has, he has taken the fame that he has, and he stepped up in a very important issue. And and he, there's actual proposals on the table now and actual measures that could change, and not just in Pennsylvania, but in other states as well. What's been interesting is that um, there's been an enormous amount of bipartisan support for many of the criminal mm-hmm. justice reforms that are mm-hmm. happening in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania but also the Trump administration introduced some criminal justice reforms that I think have been embraced by um, many who find themselves in our in our prisons um, who feel they've been wronged. Meek Mill may not be the ideal poster child, but I'm not sure we could paint a picture of who would be because it has to be somebody who's committed a crime who then served parole and violated multiple times, which <laughs> yeah. he did. The problem with the, <laughs> which the problem here is that. Um, is that the way that we've doled out justice is mm. that sometimes the sentencing for a violation of probation and parole can exceed the original underlying offense. And so he's had an opportunity now to, um, because of some reforms that have happened at the Commonwealth 
in terms of uh, post-conviction appeals, he's got a chance to go before the Superior Court, revisit the original underlying uh, charge, try and get that reversed, and then really attack the probation and parole hearing that he had. Some of his biggest supporters are, interestingly, Republicans, like the Patriots owner, who's really supported him and is one of the investors in his reform project with JC, which is spending $50 million to try and really reform probation and parole convictions. And I think, you know, I can just say that criminal justice, I've been covering it for, Mm -hmm. you know, half dozen years at this point, Mm -hmm. and it's sexy now. You know, you got Jay-Z people running up to New York to take a picture with Jay-Z. How sexy is criminal justice reforming? Quick quick comment on that. Well, it's always been sexy with libertarians, (laughs) particularly around certain um, victimless crimes like uh, um, drug possession, et cetera. Um, So there always has been like a kind of an undercurrent realizing that why are we criminalizing um, um, individuals who don't have victims or why are we criminalizing young people? Um, because it sets them up for failure. Maybe it's because we really care about the fact that we want to have people employed, we want to give them future opportunities, and touching that criminal justice system really under... under And I think this economic, because you have chambers of commerce now supporting these uh, these uh, reforms for specifically for returning citizens, mm-hmm. helping expungement. We got clean slate bills passed in Pennsylvania. This is super. I mean, they're really trying to get people back to work. I think, and again, I mean, it really the grassroots activists are really behind that. Yes. We were the ones who are mm-hmm. on the front lines before it became quote unquote sexy, putting our bodies on the line, forcing this agenda, forcing um, policy and reform change. You know, and just to get back to Meek real quick, you know, uh, Meek is a victim of the system, a system that has clearly um, injected uh, power, their power, in this particular, the judge, to uh, oppress this young man. Um, There is no perfect um, face of anything. We're all human beings. We're flawed. You know, and when men of color uh, speak their mind, you know, no disrespect to you, you know, a white America always has this, uh, you know, bow around us that we have to be this perfect person. Well, we're not perfect people. We come from neighborhoods that are imperfect. We come from families that are not perfect. What we have is our skin and our experience and our passion. Yeah. And that's what yeah. this man has. So he's not going to be a perfect person. You can pull up in a bun and a bow and say, OK, you have to be the perfect person. He's a man of color with a platform that's speaking his truth. And I'll tell you one thing. I will tell you every every you there's flaws in just about everybody Absolutely. that you see out here. And so we're going to switch gears real quick and talk about this census question. You know, there's a lot of talk about immigration here. Um, you got increased raids, backlog at the border. You got uh, deplorable conditions in detention centers. And now whether or not you're a citizen is going to possibly become a question because the Trump administration is not giving up on that. Has he already instilled enough fear to where that's, it's going to work? That's the problem. I think that's the problem because it, it's just so important that we get an accurate count. OK. And one could argue, well, we should know who. You know, who's citizens, who's not. But you yeah. have to get an accurate count. But if I am a person who's undocumented and I was thinking about filling out a census form if I got it, when I hear all this, even if the question isn't on there, I'm not going to do that. I mean, how can they – How can they, they They look at this government. How can they trust it? So he's already – whether the question's on it or not, he's already skewed the count. And that's really bad for, for places like, like Philadelphia where – you need to count every person because that's that's the formula 
for, you know, how we get our federal money and, and whatever. I think the argument is that you don't count every person. I think that there are some who would argue you would count every person, but the thing that matters for the count, because ultimately the census decides how much federal allocation we get for certain entitlement dollars, but also how uh, we divide up the congressional districts and how many congressional members you get, um, it is important to count the number of citizens. Citizens ultimately are the ones who are supposed to be represented by the congressional members, and they're the ones who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of these entitlements. We have had a citizenship and an uh, origin question, like your place of birth question, um, uh, on the census for more than 200 years. The only time we didn't have one of those questions was in 2010, which was the last census count. Um, The difference is that in the past, they were on what's called um, either the long form, which is the one we, the the short form, which is when we ask everybody, and the long form, which was just a segment, like a, a segment of the population be asked. The fact is it hasn't been on either since 2010, and the Trump administration wanted to put it back on the one that everybody gets asked. That's where the controversy is because people got used to not seeing it. But it's not been that long that we haven't asked that question. Yeah, and but there's but because of the raids, because of the things, and people have told me some activists in the in the immigrant um, community have said, mm-hmm. "Look, if it's on there, we're going to tell people not to fill it out." Yeah, well, I think, and that's Trump, impacting low income communities, absolutely. right? But I think, and I agree with my gentleman next to me, um, Trump has instituted so much fear now in it. I think rather um, the question is on the ballot, you know, on the censor um, paper or not, because of the fear that Trump has already instilled. Yeah. I don't think they would even participate in it just out of fear of ICE. And you think about Democratic cities like Philly, blue yeah. cities like a Philadelphia, New York, mm-hmm. Chicago, you know, the big cities. It's going to mean less. I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars here. It's only going to mean less if everybody didn't just count all their citizens. It can only mean less if they were disproportionately you have a lot, large number of undocumented citizens in your community. That's the only way it can mean less. What's been true before is that one might argue, and I think the Trump administration would argue this, is that we were counting people who were not supposed to be entitled to these benefits, and therefore certain municipalities were getting more than they were, their fair share. I think it's it's really one of those examples. But of we do have people who are not necessarily undocumented, who are not citizens, who can still be counted on Absolutely. the census as residents, That's though. Exactly and though, right. you know, and you have their status. Yeah, they are to be. So it's just not for counting citizens. Right. And, and remember, yeah. with the congressional districts, it's residents. It's not it's not it's not voters. But, kids. Yeah. But, yeah, kids, but, even, but even so you could say, well, they shouldn't be getting certain benefits. But you know what? If they get hit by a car, they're going to go to an emergency room and they're going to they're going to be you know, they're going to be covered. And there, there's all kinds of things like that, you know, whether and you know, policing and, the, and, and other policing. things. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. so, you know, you have to. I think Trump really did what he wanted yeah, and, and we're going to yeah, switch gears again. I mean, Philly losing thousands of jobs potentially. Closure of the oil refinery, Heinemann Hospital, protests happening every time you turn around. Can we handle this? Job loss here. These are good jobs, too. These are really good jobs. For those who are in the medical field at Hahnemann, there are opportunities for them to find other jobs. We are an ads and meds community, so there's definitely within the region plenty of hospitals where arguably people could find some opportunities. The heartbreak for me is really with the steel workers. There are 700 steel workers who are losing their jobs, and those are not ones that are going to pop up right away. Um, they're fabulous jobs. For, six-figure jobs. Some yeah, of them, yeah. yeah, some of them are six-figure jobs. Most are like median income of $60,000, but they don't require college education. They're great family-sustaining jobs. 
jobs, those are going to disappear. And there's not like there's a whole other industry where those 700 jobs can be found. It's a huge percentage of the steelworkers union as well. I think it's like 16 percent of the membership is losing their work. I don't know how we rebound from that. Yeah, you have all kinds of trades out there. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting. You go back only a few years ago when they first were going to close the refinery and all these politicians, everybody lined up to save the refinery. Now nobody's lining up because, you know, what's happening is politics. Well, it's the politics, but it's also it's environmental politics. It's it's fossil fuel politics. These guys and women, they're going to be, you know, the victims of that. And then you look at Hahnemann. And again, since I've lived here, Hahnemann has always been, you know, a problem. And, and the problem is it's twofold. Number one, it, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a population mix in terms of their patients. So it's it's met it's it's Medicaid, and you know maybe we need a public hospital, but because the Medicaid reimbursement is so, so low, low, is so low, they don't have a chance. And also because of where Hahnemann's located, it's landlocked. Yeah. So they they can't expand. But look, I'm a Democrat, but when I hear all these guys saying and women Medicare for all and whatever, you do Medicare for all. You're going to have Hahnemann's all, all over yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this has been a, an issue, jobs lost. People talking about low-income communities are going to be the ones that are, are, are losing here. And so I'm going to switch gears one more time as we get ready to close it out. I mean, 2020, election is coming. I don't know if y'all watched the debates. Lots of people on this list. Who are y'all looking at? <laughs> Does any did anybody <laughs> ring your bell, or are you just like this? Is I'm not even going to pay attention until we get you know closer to the date. Well, I mean, it was <laughs> everybody's she, silence. She's <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say I I feel a great deal of empathy for the Democrats that go around because we endured this in 2016 as Republicans watching our 16 candidates, 17 candidates, kind of duke it out. Um, and now there's 26 who are running, and every day it seems like somebody else decides to enlist. pop in or pop, pop out. Someone yeah, drop out, and yeah. then someone drop in. Joe Sesta. I think there are. I think there are a couple Jesus. of reasons to run. One is that you can increase your Twitter followers, like Andrew Yang. Another is you want to sell some books, like many of them end up writing. And some might actually want to be president of the United States. I don't know how many. But it doesn't look like um, I'm finding, at least from my Democrat friend, Democratic friends, that they're particularly enthusiastic about the lot they've been been given. Um, but it's really, really early. It's you know, so it's, early. It's really so early. many people can screw yeah. up between now yeah. and election day. Well, I, I, I will I, point out, if I just want to point out one other thing, what I think has been really interesting as a strategy from the Democratic Committee, National Committee, is that they've held all of the different um, – they're holding all of the debates in the uh, Republic, the states where – that swung to vote for um, um, for Trump. So Michigan is the next one. It was Florida. Um, it yeah. was Florida. My guess is I'm hoping Pennsylvania is going to be on the list. I heard Pennsylvania is, is definitely yeah. on the short list. But, um, no, I think it's good. I think if you want to uh, have this position, you should duke it out. We need to hear uh, where you stand on issues of poverty. Because last time it was just, you know, yeah, Hillary Clinton versus Clinton. Bernie Sanders. And, and, I yeah. and I like how Joe Biden is being tested. You know, he he ought to be tested if you want this. You know, this is not, uh, you know, an office that you are entitled to do, you know, simply because you've yeah. been in politics forever. You know, you need to be vetted. 
We need to, uh, you can't rely on, well, I was hanging with Obama anymore. You know what I mean? We need to know yeah, yeah. where, what's up. We need some apologies. We need, uh, you know, find out do you still feel the same way you, you felt when you bullied Anita Hill? You know, we need to know these things. He about has that you. long record for people just to poke him. He got a long, long record. With, I swear. And, and I like Uncle Joe. And, and, you know, I'm a fan when he acts a little crazy. And, you know, he's the crazy uncle we all know. But if you want this, we need um, politicians who yeah. actually will be able to stand the uh, the fight against Donald Trump. I'm just happy to see so many on, women. On th- yeah, yeah. Look, he's I, definitely. I, yeah, and I think we've seen what happens when you have a president with no record. Yeah. And so, you know, it's good to have a record. Look, I'm a Democrat. All I want to do is beat Trump. That's, <laughs> I know. And, and that's just want the guy. I'm willing to put the issues aside for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really just about beating I, him. I, and I'm, just, I'm concerned some of these people can't do it. I'll just say one thing. I do think that um, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, many Republicans – held their nose to vote for Donald Trump last time around or wrote in somebody else uh, at the top of the ticket. Um, so we actually saw a drop-off in Pennsylvania, for yeah. example, in terms of the number of people who voted for the top of the ticket was much less than had voted overall statewide. Yeah. Um, I do think that the reality is that if the Democrats don't choose wisely, there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are never Trumpers who are going to be running to the polls and voting for Trump because they figure at this point we survived him for four years he didn't blow anything up. I'd rather have this guy I know who might not be well, what I'd scary, like. What's scary is his poll numbers are going up. It's, it's why people, I don't know, maybe they're just, you know, getting numb with all this. Well, that's, this the, pro- that's the problem. And because this is Flashpoint, we're going to wrap this up. Lots of big stories. Pick your favorite of the ones we hashed out and if you have any predictions on how it's going to turn out. I love the, the, the Democratic debate just because it left me speechless. So it's going to be fun to watch that. I, th- I think what's going on uh, with Larry Krasner is very interesting uh, because it, just, it says where we're going as a city as we go into the next elections or whatever. I think it, it, me- it means a lot. And also where we are vis-a-vis Harrisburg and state power. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Final word, Asa Khalif. Um, the refinery. I would love to see how this is going to play out. You have environmental politics versus working men and women politics, and a lot of jobs are on the line. So I want to say thank you to Asa Khalif. Thank you to Larry Seisler. And thank you to Farah Jimenez for coming on Flashpoint and talking about these many issues in the news. Next up, his research team cured HIV. Yes, cured the disease in animals. It's a really, really rewarding feeling. The groundbreaking technique and next steps to finally ending the AIDS epidemic. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. One thing that gets our residents hot under the collar is HIV. Now, while the number of new infections has been steadily declining, there are millions living with the disease, taking daily medications to stay alive. Well, earlier this month, y'all, news broke that a team of researchers at Temple University made a successful breakthrough that could be the precursor to our cure. With me in the studio is lead HIV researcher, Dr. Kamel Khalili. Dr. Khalili, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you very much. This is a really big deal. Could you explain in layman's terms, is this a cure for HIV AIDS? 
Yes, uh, that can lead to cure. Actually, the current therapy being used in clinic is not a cure. It's basically the treatment keeps the number of the viruses in the body of the infected individual low, but it's not a cure. What uh, we have done is identify the methods that you can completely eliminate virus from the infected individuals permanently. So it means that the individual, they don't need to take a pills that the currently they're taking to, to eliminate the virus replication. And so what happens now is people take pills which will suppress the virus exactly. and get the, those counts low to where it's undetectable. And what you're saying is it doesn't just suppress it, it gets rid of it altogether. And how does it do that? When the virus infects uh, uh, cells, uh, patients, viral genome, DNA, incorporate in the infected person's Gene. So it becomes a part of the fabric of the person's gene. So every time that the patient doesn't take the medications, mm-hmm. the virus rebounds and replicates. And plus, some of those medications could also have the side effects. In one hand, it uh, stops the viral replication, but the, in the other hand, can have a side effect. We do see a number of the patients whose virus uh, uh, load are controlled by their current therapy, they have a broad range of the comorbidities, side effects, uh, like a dementia or, or bone disease, kidney disease, and broad range of that. Mm-hmm. So clearly there is a need for the methods that completely eliminate the virus to the point that when you stop taking a medication, there won't be any virus to rebound and replicate. Your method actually goes into the and, and edits the DNA exactly. so that that part of the DNA that shifted once you were infected to include HIV and AIDS and the replication ability is that, gone. That's correct. A, you can imagine it's like a, a molecular scissors that uh, gets and identifies the viral DNA incorporated in the host genome and eliminate. Uh, eliminates that viral viral genomes, and then it doesn't have any side effect. So every time that the vir- was once the viral genome is eliminated, then permanently, so the person doesn't need to worry about that uh, any medication. So you literally get rid of the AIDS Completely. virus, and you tested this in animals to prove yes. that it actually works. What animals did you use, and how did you know? Wow, we're onto something. This is it. We utilize the humanized animal which is basically uh, mice, uh, but immunosuppressed mice. But uh, we populated this animal with the human cells. Mm. And those human cells are susceptible for, repli- for infection by the virus, HIV. After humanization of the mice, we infect the animals with HIV. So virus replicates in every human cells, which circulates in the body of the experimental animal. Then we treat the uh, animals with the antiretrovirus, and we call it laser art. It's a little bit more potent than the regular art and also effectively uh, suppresses viral replication. Then we treat the animals with the CRISPR technology that we developed in our laboratory about five years ago mm-hmm. for targeting HIV. We adapted that technology and created methods that specifically targets HIV genome. And when we, developed, we treat those animals with the, with the CRISPR technology, we were able to eliminate all the virus DNA from the host gene. Wow. And then you you were like, wow, this actually worked. 
It was a multi-step process. Yeah. It's a multi-step process. You can imagine that the, if this method gets into clinic at some point, a patients who are basically infected with HIV, but the virus is controlled by antiretroviral, can be treated with the CRISPR technology, and the CRISPR should be able to eliminate the virus from the patient's samples. So this is literally the cure that everybody has been waiting for, fingers crossed. Of course, we have a work to do. Right now, we demonstrate that the 9 out of 20 experimental animals that we used were completely virus-free, and there is no virus coming back. And at the same time, we have to increase the number uh, to become closer to 100%. And then uh, that's the studies that we are doing right now in the in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And also we need to uh, increase the uh, step up uh, or the methodology to be able to uh, uh, eliminate the virus in, in the larger animals, including non-human primates. And then, obviously, the information that we will gather from those preclinical studies in the larger animal and the small animal will set the tone stage to get into the clinic. And in order to get to the clinic, we do need to get the approval of the FDA. Yeah. And then start the, uh, starting a phase one clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So currently, we are doing all of the above. We are actually modifying our methods to increase the success rate. Yeah. We are also utilizing a non-human primate. And also we are in communication with FDA uh, to prepare our application toward the phase one clinical trials. So this is, this is early results, but, pro- but very, very promising. Yes. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, this is the first time we show that, uh, that uh, you can eliminate completely replication competent virus from the animal models. Congratulations to you and your team. I know it was a team effort. It was a lot uh, of people working on this. There are a lot of people, as you said, that the highly talented people from the Temple University and also Nebraska got together and they, with, they, with a diverse set of expertise to, 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 to eliminate this problem. And then, as you see, the outcome was success. And what has been the reaction? I think uh, we, we have been getting a lot of uh, requests by the individuals who are infected with HIV, and they're waiting to get into the line, into the clinical trials, uh, participate in cl- clinical trial. It's uh, for first time that uh, people see that one can actually cure the disease. As you know that uh, since the AIDS epidemic in the early 80s, mm. uh, there's been hope that someday we can develop the vaccine or find a way to cure the disease. But we haven't been able to do that. But, and this is the first time that uh, we show that using alternative methods, the method that we use for the genetic methods instead of infectious disease method to permanent elimination of the virus. And there's so many people who are you know, living with it right now, and they're on meds, but the meds are expensive, number one. Number two, they have uh, side effects that cause other problems that they then have to treat and deal with. And so this would save lots of money <laughs> for folks long term, and it would um, get rid of those the other diseases that are caused by using all these medications. Absolutely. You uh, mentioned about the side effect and also the fact that the, that the virus is remaining in the, in the patient's uh, body 
and can any time can replicate because of the if you let's say if you forget to take uh, pills in the morning or evening, so you give a chance for the virus to become reactivated and then replicates in your body, and so it's just matter of the lifestyle also. Mm-hmm. It change entirely the, the the people the way that they're they're basically going through the day day work. This is a big deal, and it was it was everywhere. Everybody was sharing it and talking about it. And you know, we've heard people talk about prep. We t- heard a lot of advances in um, the area of HIV AIDS treatment and prevention. But this, I think. Is one of the most promising that we've heard in many many years. Yes, the 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 approach is very simple. The idea, I'm as a virologist, trained as a virologist, actually here in Philadelphia at Penn, uh, we knew that the virus is causing the disease. So if you want to cure the disease, the easiest easiest approach is to get rid of the virus, and that's exactly approach is that you're getting rid of the virus so there won't be any disease you're an inventor on patents related to the CRISPR that you mentioned that's right uh and and has worked on this gene editing technology that is now a big component of this potential cure that's right i'm as a trained as a virologist my training was at the department of microbiology at penn and uh, that was in uh, uh, early uh 70s, late 80s. and in the So you lived through, you've been That's part right. of the AIDS epidemic from the That's beginning. Right. Yeah. And actually, uh, after education, I went to uh, spend about uh, three years at National Institute of Health, the time that the AIDS epidemic had started. And uh, I was basically been through the, all those, uh, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, effort toward the treatments and finding a cure for H- HIV AIDS, which unfortunately did not uh, pan out uh, and then was unsuccessful. So we knew that the one way and perhaps to eliminate the disease is either eliminating the infected cells or eliminating virus from the infected cells. So if we do the, the latter, we will be able to save the infected cells and but uh, get rid of the virus. And that could happen by using uh, the CRISPR technology, that was, which was... Uh, adapted in our laboratory to our HIV about the five years ago. Yeah, this is a you're an ad for uh, STEM education because <laughs> you could actually go and and you know cure HIV, something that folks have been working on uh, for so so long. And so, how does it make you feel? Like you were there at the very beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, and now you are there and having a huge hand. And what could be the biggest difference maker of our generation? At the earlier days, obviously, methodologies that wasn't there, we didn't know about the methods and also our knowledge about HIV was not to this level. And then throughout the years, the new techniques and the strategies were developed. And so we took advantage of that. And with the highly talented people that we have in the laboratory, being able to, for the first time, convert the infected cells to become completely uninfected cells in the laboratories and also in the animal model. It's a really, really rewarding feeling. So many lives are going to be impacted. So you got a lot of work to do, sir. Oh, yes. This is a step by step in the right direction. So we look forward to following this. And uh, so, Dr. Khalili, where can people keep up with your research? Well, uh, you know, I'm at Temple University School of Medicine. 
And uh, I think uh, they can just uh, Google and then <laughs> it comes out. That's easy. Google way. you. Google yeah. you. And you will find out all that he is doing. So, Dr. Khalili, thank you so much for it's being on Flashpoint be and talking about this issue of news. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Next up, they started a mindfulness program in prisons and it's changing lives. Gives you space. Space to simply be present. How it's expanded to underserved communities. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air Saturday evenings at 930 and Sunday mornings at 830. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one organization is breaking barriers by offering free or donation-based yoga across the Philadelphia area. They have weekly classes in public spaces that allow anyone to experience an hour of mindfulness. Here to tell us more about Roots to Rise is Executive Director and Founder Tim Wagner and Community Program Director Maria Flacavento. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So Roots to Rise, how did you guys get started giving yoga in these public spaces? Well, we started three years ago and we actually started teaching men at Kern Fromhol Correctional Facility. And I did that for a year. So in 2016, I taught 80 classes the inmates there mm-hmm. and then in that experience one of the men came up to me and said why was there nothing before I got here it's great that I have the opportunity to do the practice inside but I never had the opportunity to do it outside and so we made a deliberate shift to go from in facility programming to community-based programming and since then we've tried to provide free and low-cost services throughout the entire city. Wonderful. Explain a little bit about this idea of mindfulness and where you put yourselves to reach large numbers of people. You know, yoga has really exploded in popularity, especially in cities, but for the most part, it's very expensive. It's in studios and gyms, and we want to be in places that people can access where they don't have to shell out, you know, $100 a month for quality practices. So we're mostly in rec centers, free library branches, other community spaces. Our classes are usually $5 or $3, although we never turn anybody away. And we have teachers from a huge range of backgrounds. We have power teachers, restorative teachers. Our teachers are social workers, educators, waitresses, all over the map. So everybody's really coming together from a different place to offer the same thing, which is accessible, affordable yoga. Yeah. And I'm a daily meditator, just so you know, every single day before I go into the crazy that is my job. And so why do you think it's become this phenomenon now to where accessibility is becoming less of a problem? Well, I think that there's a model that's been set up and it's the for-profit model. And part of what we're trying to do is simply break that wall down. I mean, we don't have a physical space, so we use public spaces with the idea that everybody's a beginner. And so this thought that it doesn't matter if you have done this before. It doesn't matter if you think this is for you. Just try this on and see if it fits. Like you meditate every day. 
it gives you a result that you want, mm-hmm. right? And so moving, yoga is nothing but mindful movement based around meditation. And it's this opportunity to get out of your head, which is always going, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. And then it gives you space to simply be present, to have increased reaction time, you know, take a deep breath, then make a decision. Yeah, it could change a lot of things. Could change a lot of things. Because impulse control is the main reason that a lot of people end up in prisons, why a lot of kids end up in detention. Oh, yeah. We all get angry. Everybody (laughs) gets angry. And you get angry multiple times a day. And so, like, what can you do just to say, okay, check myself, take a step back, move forward? So, cool name, Roots to Rise, where did it come from? Oh, you, you hear it a lot in yoga studios. Root down, rise up. Roots to rise. Yeah, it just seemed to fit. So what's the future of the organization? Perfect scenario. Like We would love to have free programming across the city. We would love for it to be sponsored. And we would love to have everybody throughout the city the opportunity to participate. Like It's an invitation. It's up to you to attend or not. Have you seen changes in the, in the folks within the communities that you now serve? I absolutely think so. Yeah, well, I mean, Andre is a great sort of example of Andre Coles. Andre was a student at De Silvestro Playground for a couple years. He came regularly, and then he made it known to Tim that he was interested in pursuing a yoga teacher training. And Tim finagled him a spot in the Three Queens Yoga training, and Andre's from Cobbs Creek, where he teaches now. He teaches the Cobbs Creek class on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. So I think that's a great example, and we, ideally in our perfect world, we would be able to make that happen more for our students who want to see that happen, you know, hoping to make that same process available in a way that's a lot more affordable and hopefully ultimately a lot more diverse. And that's sort of where you guys are. You're in communities of color, Mm low-income communities that literally don't have the financial resources to take these type of classes. Absolutely. It's a communal practice, and you want to be with people that are familiar to you Yeah. Right. So like we teach a class at Dobbins, the high school, and we've been doing it on Saturday mornings and like 30 or 40 women come and they're all people of color. Right. I can't teach that class. (laughs) I could if we got into an emergency, but like I know it's not the right class for me to teach. So we like specifically try to find somebody that fits the demographic that's coming to the class to teach it. That's awesome. So how does it make you feel that this is sort of picking up steam? It's crazy. Like, it's, I never thought that this would be the case. We didn't have a plan in the beginning, right? It was just, like, me, one person, going to try to do something. And then as it happened, I discovered people wanted to be involved. And so it's grown from there. It's quite remarkable in my mind because I never expected this. Wow. Starting in prisons, now in communities, changing it up, bringing folks in. And so where can people reach you if they want to support you or they want to check out your class schedule? They can visit us online, Roots2Rise, the number two, Roots2Rise.com. All of our um, email, Instagram, we're on Instagram and Facebook. It's the same handle. Go to the website and we have our community class schedule. Also our summer programming. We have lots of things going on this summer, Um, some of them going all the way through to September and some of them ending soon. So you can check out everything online and shoot us an email or message us on a social if you have any questions. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to Tim Wagner. Thank you to Maria Flacavento for coming in to KYW Studios and talking about this issue in the news.
Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there is an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Helen Keller once wrote, we may have found a cure for most evils, but we have found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.